Greetings, outcast, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. easy to take words for granted. We use them every day, and now more than ever, we are witnessing the watering down of language. With the ubiquitousness of texting, we are finding that the abbreviations and acronyms that many use while texting are finding their way into spoken language. Multi-syllabic words are being truncated down to a single syllable. Language seems to be quickly moving to smaller and smaller mouth noises paragraphs will inevitably wind up being 280 characters or less. Condensed books will probably even make a comeback, more resembling pamphlets as opposed to books. It seems as if language is being dumbed down purposefully because, simply put, words cast spells. Language has the power to affect matter and energy, therefore reality. If we are inarticulate and our vocabulary is limited, so is our ability to manifest reality. If we wield language mindlessly and merely choose words based on conformity or laziness, we fuel the monochromatic machine of day-to-day drudgery. Today's guest, author, illustrator of adorable stick figures, and fellow podcaster Danny Katz, is here to cast linguistic spells with us today about quantum languaging, which is defined on Danny's website as a, quote, transformational communication paradigm that teaches us to engage words beyond mere dictionary definitions. 
this science invites us to consider and intelligently utilize language from the vantage point of their energetic frequencies and the effects the multidimensional coding embedded in our words has on the people we are addressing, as well as ourselves and the world at large." Unquote. I start off the conversation by asking Danny to give us a little background on her and her work. I don't know where to start. <laughs> you can make it as simple or as extravagant as you wish. Uh, my background is as a journalist. Um, and that kind of led me into the realms of um, like a more metaphysical relationship with language. I went through a deeply shamanic period in the early 2000s. And while I was going through that period and I was freelancing, so I was writing pretty much every day, um, I started to see the vibrational frequencies of words and how they were programming people and reality at large. So that moved me into a different realm of what I call quantum languaging, wherein um, I'm in a constantly unfolding study of how language is programming reality and how to use language to transform reality for the better. Somewhere along the way, journalism was completely co-opted. Mm. It doesn't exist anymore. I was kicked out. Now I do some podcasts, and um, I guess that's it. I, I gotta, get, I gotta get better at this part. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sorry that it's such a predictable question, but I think it's it's important for people to know the context that you know guests are coming from. So, and you're also an an illustrator and an author, right? Yes, I am. So I draw chicken scratchy line drawings. Um, and I had actually been pitching the, the LA Weekly for years before they let me in. And they were always like, yeah, we love how you write, but have you read our paper? Because we don't really print conspiracy theory. <laughs> this was back in like 2000, 2001. Uh -huh. um, and then it, it was the year that um, Beyonce was singing at the Academy Awards with like a big lantern around her mm -hmm. neck or something. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't really watch TV, but I was crashing at my mom's and she was having an Academy Awards party. And I was so bored that I just ripped up a bunch of paper bags from the kitchen and with grease pencil started drawing all of the celebrities. <laughs> and then I walked them into the LA Weekly the next day in person. And I was like, everyone's going to be running the same AP approved photographs. I think you guys should run these. And that was like my in. Um, and so then they would, they would let me illustrate all my own articles. I don't know if it was so much let me as like, then they didn't have to pay an artist mm. <laughs> to illustrate. So I just kind of became known for my writings and drawings at the same time. And, um, I am an author. So I have a transformational coloring book called Yes, I Am. And then my first quantum languaging book is Word Up, Little Languaging Hacks for Big Change. And sometimes my writing can be a little intense and didactic. So the illustrations kind of balance it out with some heart. And then last year, I put out an illustrated guide to propaganda. And obviously, it features my drawings. <laughs> I love and you it. also teach a class in that, right? Yes, that cool. was inspired by my homeschool students, and I was using the Bernays book, but it wasn't really translating for kids, yeah, so yeah. I got targeted with a bioweapon, and I just took the opportunity to bust out a book. Cool. Fantastic. So even back in the early 2000s, quote-unquote conspiracy theory was still a stigmatic thing? Oh, yeah, it yeah. was still a stigmatic thing, uh, okay. for sure. Yeah, but I, I got on that from, I was uh, producing the news for Pacifica Radio at the around like 9-11 and um, 
when North Korea was named as part of the axis of evil, mm-hmm. I, I was like, I don't get it. And I asked my news director and he's like, here's the phone, call North Korea, figure it out. And that just kind of sent me like everything really unraveled from there. Um, so, yeah. Cool. Well, I listened to the audio version of Word Up, so I didn't get the benefit of the drawings accompanying the text, but the text itself was fantastic and very inspiring. So why, what sort of put words on your radar? Why, why do you think that words are so important? Um, because words create our reality. They are, they're the literal tools with which our reality construct is created. I feel like language chose me. There must be some sort of past life thing. I, I was always a writer, even as a little kid. And I'm one of those writers who, you know, like I can spend three hours on one sentence just tussling with language. So I've always loved language. And as I said, I have like a pretty strong metaphysical bent. So it's, it just kind of very easily came together. At this point, I consider myself a custodian of language. I'm in service to language. I'm just kind of taking my orders from language um, and doing what I can to help empower us as reality creators in this dense realm and, you know, busting up the fiction that we're powerless and we're just inheriting this shitty default reality construct over which we have no power because it's, completely the opposite. Absolutely. I I call it the makes me feel culture that we live in now, which is we are, we've basically uh, farmed out all of our states to other people. So if someone doesn't make you feel good or they're making you feel bad, then you are completely powerless to the whims of other people's perceptions. And I think that that's one of the things that I've seen really in the past 20 years that has really ramped up. And you see it in academia, but you just see it on social media where people will post videos that, you know, you're making me feel uncomfortable. And I feel like that's such a a mesmerism because the idea there is that I don't have to be responsible for my feelings. It's your responsibility to make me feel something. Yeah, it's such a fundamentally disempowering perspective. And as we know, I mean, you especially, you know, studying psychology right now, like the only way that we grow, heal our traumas and integrate is when they're triggered. So by outlawing triggering, we are effectively outlawing growth and evolution, um, which from my perspective is completely deliberate. Exactly. It's exposure therapy. It's putting yourself in situations where you are exposing yourself to those triggers that really is empowering because then you realize, oh, this thing doesn't have control over me. Exactly. And it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Right Use of Will series. And maybe you came across that while you're in Santa Fe because it's such a big Santa Fe thing. But it's like there is nothing more out of alignment than telling other people to adjust their behavior to make me more comfortable. And it's really startling to see, you know, various generations of people who have no skills when it it comes to being able to self-soothe, to mind the triggers for the lessons, to take responsibility for their own experience of reality. Like it's pretty frightening to watch that. It is because feelings are not factual. 
there are perceptions. And right. so, so subjective. Exactly. Yeah. So the idea that there is this one objective reality that we can all co-sign on is so such erroneous thinking because mm-hmm. again, it's saying my perception is the perception and that can't be questioned. And I think that that's the danger of that mindset is that we have to be willing to be flexible and make room for each other's perceptions without negating other people's feelings, but also not empowering those feelings where they take over the room like a vacuum. Yeah. It's also supremely narcissistic. Like I feel like this culture of victimization is inextricably bound to narcissism where, because what someone has decided to make meaning of what I said in such a way that it hurts their feelings. Now the world is supposed to revolve around them and I'm supposed to shut up or apologize or tell them I've learned something. And it's like, it doesn't really work like that. The world doesn't revolve around you and or your contracted comfort zone, but your wisest move would be to look at these triggers and do some internal work around integrating them so that you could get stronger and handle more ideas that counter your own. Like that's actual empowerment. Exactly. And I see it a lot with um, identify, uh, people identifying with their diagnosis. So I am dot, dot, dot. And I hear this in school a lot where people will say, I have this, I have that, I am this, I am that. And what I realize is that a lot of these uh, diagnoses are being used as excuses to check out from reality because then you can pull that card and say, I'm this, and so that's why I can't do this assignment, or I, I'm being triggered because I am this, as opposed to examining, you know, what what is my limiting belief or my limiting thought about this thing, and how do I move through that as opposed to trying to avoid it? A thousand percent. You're so, you're so speaking my language around the diagnoses, and when I was in my early 20s, a team of psychiatrists attempted to project a certain disempowering diagnosis onto me. And luckily, like I had a very strong will at that point. And I thought I can buy into this and use this as an excuse my whole life to be unhappy. Or I can say, fuck that and throw away everything they're trying to project and heal and integrate and figure myself out. Yeah, it's the ultimate victimhood because if it's you're getting diagnosed with some sort of mental or physical illness, then, well, you can't do anything about that and you just have to do whatever. You're at the whim of whatever diagnosis you're, you're you know, is foisted upon you. Yes, yeah. 100%. And it's like, and I don't know that, I mean, my sense is that doctors, psychiatrists are well-meaning and are well-intended and don't really realize that these diagnoses that they're projecting upon others are functioning as curses. But let's be clear, they are functioning as curses. Fuck yeah, definitely. I think they are aware of it. And I think that 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 is the reason that there is kind of a new move to go into more of a mindful modality of therapy and really looking at people as a whole as opposed to the these kind of fragmented parts Mm -hmm. and I think that that's more of like a new wave of psychology that I'm seeing right now where if you go into a clinical setting 
they're going to use the DSM-5 for insurance purposes. That's what that's really about. It's to, to say, okay, well, you have this, and this affords you this many sessions with a therapist or this many days inside of a clinical setting. But I think what uh, psychiatrists and psychologists are saying is that doesn't work for the long term and that's not really going to help someone. So how we help people is instead of seeing them as these fragmented parts, seeing them as a whole and saying, okay, what is your diet? What is your level of spirituality? How are you engaging with the world? What's your family structure? What's the community around you? And maybe looking at all of these parts and then making a determination of how to empower and engage that person mm -hmm. as not a patient, but as a, per, as a human being. And I think that's the pivot that I'm seeing. And one of the reasons that I decided to go into the field, because I feel like we are in a point in history right now that is so critical to have people from the inside out saying, okay, I'm not going to do this to someone else. I'm not going to give them seven different fucking medications because they're depressed. And all that's going to do is exacerbate their depression and lead them down to suicide, suicidal ideation and, you know, a whole host of other physical ailments that they may have. So I do feel like there is a slog forward I think my concern right now is the move, this quick jump into the psychedelic realm. What are your mm. thoughts about that, about using psychedelics with people who maybe aren't necessarily there because of the language that they're using with themselves? You, there's there's so much there, but I'm, I'm going to follow your lead and I'm only going to speak to the psychedelic piece. Um, I think that... The whole psychedelic movement coming from, what, 50s, 60s was co-opted from the get-go and was a total scam. I think that um, a lot of people don't understand integration around psychedelics or the need to do inner child work mm -hmm. and raise our emotional intelligence around psychedelic work. I think that, um, you know, the way I was seeing it in the 2000s was like, yeah, you'll get a lot of like egoic street cred for drinking a shit ton of ayahuasca where you won't get any for like going deep into a childhood wound and just being tender and gentle with these younger parts of ourselves. So I think in general, um, psychedelics aren't necessarily being used in a holistic way. I, I'm watching what's happening now and we have all like these white dudes with podcasts have deemed themselves the kings of the psychedelic movement. You have people like Michael Pollan, who's like tried something once and now he's telling all of us <laughs> how we're supposed to do these things, which yeah. is extremely offensive to me. Um, I think the fact that these things are being decriminalized and or legalized is very concerning because now you have the government with their grimy hands and what's coming through DARPA. So I, I think it's extremely dangerous. Like there's an aspect of me that thinks, yeah, it'd be wonderful if the whole world would do a giant five MEO trip and we would be on the other side of this in a second. But I don't think, especially since like the COVID, you know, sham show has hit for the past few years. Mm -hmm. I am shocked at, at how immature we are as yeah, a species absolutely. and um, how little we can handle. So now you're going to give these people who are just wanting 
daddy government to boss them around to do psychedelics and think that they're going to be able to handle it with their like shitty processed food and their addiction to porn and cell phones and gossip. Like, I don't think that's going to go very well. I totally agree. Yeah. And, and you see this like furry movement, you know, people that are identify as animals. And there's a, a teacher at our oldest son's school who identifies as a cat and you have to ask to go to the litter box. What? I, no, I'm not, Lewis, I'm not kidding down. you. The I'm, the, there's Fuck a yeah. teacher in high school here in Lawrence, Kansas at our son's school who identifies as a cat and she requires you, you cannot ask to go to the restroom. You have to ask to go to the litter box. How does this person have a job? Are, are parents freaking, like, this is atrocious. It was in the newspaper. And if there's any kind of pushback against that, then... You're a bigot. Y- y- there's something wrong with you. You're catphobic. <laughs> You're Yes, exactly. <laughs> That, that's like, that's insane. It like is. think of how that's affecting all of the students in the school that can't be a good thing. Well, imagine that person on a psychedelic. I mean, is that what we need? Fortunately, exactly. fortunately exactly. it's a high school. So they're probably getting a good laugh, but if it was like a, you know, an elementary school, earlier grades. Yeah. Like that would be just weird, weird and uncomfortable. But even the modeling to teens that like, this is going to fly in culture. Yeah, exactly. You can deem yourself another species and demand that everyone around you uh, bails on their own critical thinking and plays make-believe so as not to hurt your little kitty feelings and that's going to work. Yeah, and if they don't, you can call them whatever name you want. Yep. Yeah, <sighs> it's, so, it's so strange. And I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't reality. And it's that person's reality and they're subjecting, there's 1,800 schools students in this school now not everyone is going through this woman's class but the fact that that is the tone that's being set at this school and that the uh, board of education has signed off on this that's the part again as you're saying where what it's teaching the students is Basically, I can come up with any reality and other people have to bolster and support that reality. Well, maybe it's not that they've signed off on it, but that they're too scared to say anything about it because they don't want to be called out. Right. But that's being complicit as far as I'm concerned. True. Uh, Yeah, I I agree. So is it fair game to go up to this teacher and like sniff her butt because that's what cats do? Can she lick her her parts during class? Sniff her butt. Where, where does it stop? I mean, if we're going to honor you as a cat, this is how cats relate. Exactly. exactly. Does she have a, a clawing tree there? I don't exactly. know. Exactly. That's how it, she... It she... breaks? <laughs> oh, my Lord. Yeah, exactly. But again, I don't want to see that person on a psychedelic. I no. think, again, the, we are off affording our reality or the reality that you know we're not all agreeing upon with this other element that skews perceptions and saying well that's okay and we should be able there should be a psilocybin store at on every corner i just don't think 
that in the state we are in right now as a culture that people are sophisticated enough to go down that road yeah. and be able to make decisions that are healthy. It's to, to usher some practice like that into this culture at this time, seemingly out of nowhere for most people yeah. is not a good idea. I don't think. Yeah. I, the red flag is always Netflix. When Netflix has a show with Michael Pollan and suddenly they're trying to normalize the psychedelic movement, that's when the red flag goes up for me saying, okay, what's this about? I'm totally with you. I had the same thought. Like someone will mention a show and I'm like, what platform? They're like Netflix. And I'm like, I don't even need to watch it to know that this is some sort of propaganda campaign. And I know that um, Jamie Wheel who's part of the Consilience Project, he's been really pushing for this psychedelic thing. And he, part of his work are, are these ethical cults. And I know someone here in New Mexico who was like recruited into like the ethical cult training program. It, it had a different name. Um, but during his intake session, they, they were asking him, um, so when you do psychedelics, do most people look to you as a leader? And they were really like harping on that, but he didn't understand what he, he was being pulled into. And apparently it was all these people that were, were being trained to kind of take the lead in group psychedelic situations to be gurus or to control. I mean, it's a slippery slope because I definitely see where psychedelics have helped me in my path, but it's a piece of you know, like a hundred moving parts of intense conscious evolution. It's not just tripping out. Like I remember when microdosing took off a few years ago and some normie people would say to me like, Hey, I really wanted to get again, get into microdosing. And I'm like, microdosing what? Like broccoli, like battery acid, <laughs> like microdosing is like sipping or walking. Like it's a verb. So you just want to do this verb, but you don't give a shit what you're microdosing. Like just even the languaging around it was like, you just want to say something that makes you sound cool, but you don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah. I, I always said from the beginning when I started to do MDMA as a teenager and, you know, the, my few LSD experiences and my few psilocybin experiences, what I said from the beginning, the first thing that I realized the first time I ever did it was like, oh, this is a door that already exists inside my perception. This is already something that's there. I don't need to take this. I've taught myself that I have to take something in order to get to this place. But I think once I realized and recognized that it was easy for me to get there without the dose. Mm. And I think that's the thing that I find more interesting is being able to trip without taking anything mm -hmm. and, and being able to use those experiences to move forward in life, but without saying like, I think our kids should take LSD. <laughs> I don't think our kids should take LSD at 13 and 15. If they're 25 no. and they are in a situation where that comes up and that seems like something they want to do, I think the prefrontal frontal lobe has formed. I think they're in a better state mentally. Sure. Then that's something to discuss then. But I don't know that they sh everyone should have access. I think that's where I get really uncomfortable. 
I do as well. It's like, cause there's, the, you know, one side of me that's like, these things should, the government shouldn't have a say in any of this. So yeah. to, to deem a plant, a fungus, a, a, you know, a, a toad excretion, legal or illegal is overreach in my opinion. So exactly. I want my government out of that conversation, but this push to popularize and normalize um, is very concerning to me. And I, you know, I'm not sure if you guys have seen it, but I, Emily and I, we do a podcast together and we've mm -hmm. done a series with Robert Forty, who's a good friend of mine, um, where we, we've tracked that the whole psychedelic movement was an op from the get-go. It came in, you know, through the Nazi party, mm -hmm. um, through those people, and it was never anything but an op. So to think this is different now um, is really misguided. And then seeing the people who have been, you know, put up as the leaders of this movement is is more concerning than anything. What, what do you think the op uh, part of that equation is? Mind control. Mm -hmm. But <clears throat> it seems so unpredictable to, because I'm play around with this too. Uh, and I'm interested to ask you because obviously you guys have done research on it. Uh, how does that, it seems so unpredictable in the sense that sure you can give somebody LSD for instance, but it affects everybody differently. And especially when they're doing it out, say at Woodstock, how, how, how I I don't understand what can be gleaned by the CIA I, by from that. Well, one thing that I'm noticing, um, and this is something that Emily and I are going to talk about on our next show, is um, it puts people in a very vulnerable, open state. Sure, and they're very open to suggestion. You know, they're very you you can drop one little seed in a twelve hour trip that wouldn't have come organically. And then who knows what they're doing in terms of frequency warfare? Who knows what they're mixing things with? I mean, anyone, you know, who grew up in California, weed changed quite a lot after it got legalized, came much stronger, much yeah, more yeah. psychedelic. Um, so I think it's just giving access to people who don't deserve access, no one deserves access, you know, to our brain and our subconscious minds in these very, very vulnerable states. Sure, sure. That makes sense. I totally agree. And I think that one of the, the pieces of that is, and uh, Emily and I talked about this when she interviewed me, one of the pieces of this is the virtual reality uh, Oculus goggle. And so you can really, really manipulate and control the mind if you have a screen, you know, and shut out, the, you know, the other world. I mean, you could put oh, anything well. in there. For sure. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And especially these days where I think they're just deploying more and more technology through everything we're taking in. Like, it's not lost on me that you have Aubrey Marcus, who right now is like a big mouthpiece for psychedelics and he has his like arcadia conference where you know people are taking psychedelics en masse and what put him on the map was on it anotropic so it's always like giving you know these people coming from questionable back questionable backgrounds from my perspective access to our brains and to our minds it's like i don't i love psychedelics i don't want any psychedelics that the government has approved you know i'll i'll, I'll stick with the underground Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to have a firm footing before you step into that sort of territory. And 
frankly, most people don't have that firm footing. You have to be very self-aware. You have to know yourself inside and out. You've got to have a very strong starting point before you enter the world of potential discombobulation. Yeah, a thousand percent. And it's like, yeah, from an idealistic perspective, I think it would be amazing for all of us to be resourced enough to trip. But these past two, three years have shocked the hell out of me. I didn't realize that this is where we're at. So I I think it would be tantamount to giving, you know, infants psychedelics. It's not appropriate. Which is what Charles Manson was doing. True. You know, and and look, look at how, like what those people were convinced to do with, you know, with that access that he and the CIA working through him had to those young minds. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that that's one of the things and I I totally concur with you when you have government involvement it's, it's nefarious from the get-go. There's no way that they're going into this with any altruism thinking, "Oh, this is going to elevate the planet and we're all going to be able to raise our frequencies." I think that's rubbish. I think that you know, we've talked about this many times on the podcast before. Every problem we experience on this earth right now is a solvable problem. So Easily. you you insert government overreach and suddenly they haven't come in and made anything better. All they've done is co-opt something that didn't need any intervention well, already. And they're all government created problems to begin with. Exactly. Yeah. Or, or fictions that don't even actually exist. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. False, false flags and the psyop that we have been referencing the last two and a half, three years. My God. Yeah. Insanity. I love this question, and I I want us to touch on it. How do you see that texting affects language? Hmm. I see it in many ways with my work. Um, you know, because my work is pointing people's attention to the deleterious and disempowering frequencies in our everyday languaging habits. So from that perspective, texting is amazing because I get to see mm. those disempowering habits um, with my own eyes before I send them. And it's a wonderful opportunity for me to edit and catch myself. So yeah. that's the upside of texting. The downside is the decimation of the language in terms of truncating words, in terms of overusing acronyms, things like um, if someone texts me the words H-U-N, I am incensed. Like, <laughs> honey is not like too, too, like that's too, too hard for you to text. <laughs> and if we're going to truncate it, it's not H-U-N, it's H-O-N. Like all of that infuriates me. Um But I think the biggest thing is it's enabling our emotional retardation because we're not speaking in real time. We're not, we don't hear people's tones. We don't, we're not getting the pauses. We're not hearing the fluctuations in voice and volume. And I think it's just enabling our emotional devolution. Yeah. It's also another form of laziness that is, as really being kind of fed into the zeitgeist, like that we're too lazy to write out a full, complete sentence when we text someone. And, you know, I'm seeing this in in college with 
the idea that standardized tests are racist and mathematics is racist and calling yourself an American is now considered racist. I find that so interesting because, again, it's this idea that there is this version of our reality that is the white version and then there's the a version of the reality that is other cultures or other races and we have to adjust in order to squish people in what does that say if you are a black person that you're not smart enough to do math i can't believe that that people aren't up at arms at that saying like what the fuck are you saying how can that be okay yeah, it's so insulting and disempowering. I, I just don't even, I mean, I, I find it especially ridiculous in America where we're all mutts. We're all multicultural exactly. mutts, you know, my, minus the natives, which, you know, there are very few of. It's insane to me. I was, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is ridiculous. I'm a child of the 70s, you know, so that was like, Free to be you and me, yes. the Jeffersons. My first crush <laughs> next to Schroeder was uh, um, Fred Sanford. You know, like he, he was Elizabeth. he was my A number one, and I had a Fred Sanford doll. And you no know, y'all love the Cosby Show. Like none of so all of this this divide that has come in is so fake to me, and I refuse to take the bait. But yeah, that that black people can't do math. Yeah. Uh, that black people can't take standardized tests. So how did Clarence Thomas find his way to the Supreme Court? How did Obama make his way to the presidency? How did all of this happen if these narratives are true? Yep. Exactly. exactly. Thomas Sowell, I mean, one of the greatest minds of the 20, 20th, 21st century, He, you know, one of the things that he said, and I, I love him because you can go onto YouTube and find these great clips where he's having these dialogues with people back in the seventies, you know, talking about, uh, you know, equal opportunity and rights and how all of that is just been completely manufactured to disempower black people. This idea of quotas and, you know, being hired because you're a black person as opposed to the, your merit or your abilities. And one thing that he said, he did as many uh, hour series with Charlie Rose and he said, I didn't realize that my family was poor until we left our community. He grew up in Harlem. And he said, because there was so much love in my family and, and the family unit was so close that I didn't realize we didn't have any money because that wasn't the driving force in our family. So I think that the shift that you see in the black community is this idea of chains and cars and, you know, having all of this material wealth and the absolute deconstruction of the black family, again, the erosion of that is an intentional erosion because, again, it's disempowering people that could potentially be a threat to the system. So we need to make them... Uh, uh, like we we need them to be uh they need to be a part of the system they need to be uh, reliant on the system is what i was trying to Dependent, say yeah. yeah a thousand percent and i think we can also see this um this emphasis on materialism um as another deliberate op coming through hip-hop and rap music you know you hear in those songs how often 
you know, the, the artists are referencing themselves, which you don't hear in Edio Sound. So there's this like weird kind of insecurity that's being programmed through the music. You see the emphasis on bling and bragging about money. Like that doesn't feel organic to me. And then you have this extremely reductive conversation around privilege as though it could be whittled down to skin color, you know, or genitals. And, you know, for me growing up, like, uh, my school was very mixed. We were like, you know, half Jews, a quarter Iranians and a quarter blacks. And we all played together and we all did everything together. And there wasn't that shit. But I was always very envious of the strength of the families in the black community, you know, which to this day I am. And it's like, well, why isn't that part of the privilege conversation of having a strong family unit and strong family bonds and being brought up with strong emotional ties and confidence that your people have your back you know that like that's not on this like fake privilege list Mm -hmm. yeah i think that the left has become more outrage hungry uh this last couple of generations where it hasn't been before like i don't remember the left when i was I was uh, politically active in the probably early 90s, late 80s, and we weren't looking for things to get upset by. There were plenty of things to get upset by, and that was the government. Uh, but now the government is the, has been co-opted as the good guy. Somehow Biden plays a part in that. I'm not quite sure how that works, but... Uh, but yeah, it's in a sense, I think, and I've said this before here, is that it's this, all of this is a symptom of actually how good things are because we're, we're having to just, I mean, <laughs> subdivide ourselves into these almost microscopic uh, cl- categories, you know, like lesbian, bald, amputees like I, I don't know it's just it's just is so I think it's a symptom of we're running out of things to to really be seriously outraged by well it's the slog for representation it's this idea that you have to see yourself on television in order to be validated in order to feel like you're a part of the conversation to feel like you're you are a part of um, some aspirational reality so if I don't see myself exactly on TV or in the media or on social media then I don't exist I'm invisible but it's such a bigoted, reductive conversation. Exactly. We're never going to see ourselves on exactly. TV because For we're sure. unique individuals. Like I remember as a kid, like blonde, it was always blondes, right? Brunettes were the underrepresented. Yeah. And I play Candyland and it was like, well, I could be the blonde girl, the black girl, but there's no, you know, like <sighs> olive skinned brunette. And, but that being said, I think that there is something positive to seeing more representation on TV. The way they're doing it now is so contrived and formulaic that it's appalling. Um, so it's like, yeah, I think I think that there is an, an element that is helpful to society, but I saw, um, I can only take television in like very small pieces. I'll give something five minutes and then yeah. I'm just like screaming at the screen and I'm like, turn it off, go back to a book. But I saw some shitty show where there was like a Hollywood um, studio and the studio head was a Latino man. And I'm like, 
you're fucking crazy. Like now we've gone to the crazy place. Like they're, they are all Jews. Like, let's just be real. Like this is, this would never happen. We're not there yet. You can't force this nonsense. Yeah. I see it when we had Hulu and we were just in a place where we weren't paying for it. And so we got to see the commercials. Sometimes I would leave the volume onto the commercial just to see what the propaganda was. And 99.9% of the commercials were like Tide or some laundry detergent. And it was always a man doing the laundry with the kids or the kids running in and, and, and the man is doing the laundry. And at one point, you know, jokingly, we were talking with the kids and they were like, you know, where's the mom? I was like, oh, the mom's dead. Like, <laughs> that's what this is all about. There's <laughs> no more moms. We don't need mom because dad does the laundry. And I understand, you know, I grew up in the 70s where it was ancient Chinese secret. And, you know, this, this, yeah. what was considered now, it's appalling and, and considered so racist to have those types of commercials, you know. But I remember thinking, you know, is this supposed to represent what the world is now that women, you know, if a woman does housework somehow that she's lesser, if she's doing the laundry for her children or the laundry for her husband, that somehow makes her less of a woman. What do you think about that? About well, that? The, the, the war on women continues. Like we first saw it in second wave feminism where it's like, you know, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle as though no boy or man could read that. Like, just think of the implications of that bumper sticker on a generation of boys and men. And we had this fallacy that women could do it all. And then there are people like me who I'm still trying to learn to be feminine and get out of this like overblown masculine hustle culture that I don't actually like. So, you know, it's just continuing the war on women um, in terms of that we do have to do everything and we are supposed to be out in the workplace and there is this denial of the fundamental truth of polarities. You know, we live in a reality um, comprised of equal and opposite forces. We live in duality. Masculine and feminine are always going to be playing with one another when we're talking about people or mechanics or engineering. Like that's just how this reality construct works. But since, you know, from my perspective, since second wave feminism, it's just women are supposed to be running all this masculine energy. Um, and then that leaves us to like all these feminized men, which is why those of us who were like Pluto and Libra, it's all fucked up. Like, I'm grateful you guys got it together to be together. <laughs> but I think it's, again, this like, there's just this denial of biology that is so overblown right now like we see it in terms of the me too movement and everyone wanting to like sanitize sex and make it safe and it's like look at the world look at every species of mammal on the planet it's not safe it's never going to be safe learn to use your voice learn to have your own back learn to say no and not go to people's hotel rooms at one in the morning dressed like a slut exactly like, you can't micromanage the world so uh, that was a lot i think it's ridiculous I remember when Chrissy Hine put out her biography and she mentioned a situation where she was admittedly, she said, I, I went to this room with a couple of guys that I knew were shady and I ended up getting raped. And 
I take responsibility for that situation because that was a stupid ass thing to do. And she got so much shit for that, you know, like, I mean, she just got ripped from one end to the other for, for, for taking responsibility for her own actions, you know? And it's so infantilizing for women. Like I cannot stand this like neo-feminism bullshit that we're dealing with now as though women are so weak we can't use our voices. We need men to sign consent forms because we can't be trusted to know what's right or wrong for us. You know, the, this whole women-owned business thing, like I don't need your pity business. I'm an act- I'm an empowered equal human. Like keep that shit away from me. It's, I find it interesting that there's uh, this, I, I see it very fragmented because there's this side of sexuality now and sexual contact now, which is uh, a lot about kink, a lot about BDSM, a lot about um, basically using uh, sex as a way to get out aggression, to get out this very negative energy and calling uh, promiscuity empowerment and self-objectification as empowerment and self-sexualization as empowerment. And I think that that has been confused. I really think it started kind of pre- internet or not pre-internet, but kind of pre-social media, I saw this slow slog with Paris Hilton. I was living in Los Angeles at the time with Paris Hilton in the late 90s and the early 2000s when she started to get out kind of in the club scene and really was desperate for attention. She got the show The Simple Life. And I think that this is where the shift happened, where becoming dumb became um, feminine, well, more dumb, Um, being... Uh, like overtly sexual sex tapes, using that as a platform for fame. That ha- if you look at that period to today, where we've come with you know hundred million people or probably closer to a billion people worldwide on some form of social media, and women and now men thinking that the only way that they are valuable is by that social engagement that they're getting by uh, ex- uh, showing more or exposing more of their bodies. Um, being more feminine if they're a man, uh, deciding this whole trans movement that's now happening, and these people that are in the trans movement playing that Paris Hilton role. So it's like the t- voice is up here, and we're <laughs> talking like this, and we all sound like we're a little drunk. And, you know, it's just the dumbing down of women and putting this this idea that a costume is what it means to be a woman. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, you know, I write about, I just finished a new book. It's called The Language of Betterarchy, and it's making the, the rounds around the publishing houses now. Oh, cool. But I, I deconstruct the different feminist movements, and it was third wave feminism in the 90s that gave us ethical sluthood, which mm-hmm. is so freaking ridiculous because- Women are wired for security and safety and sledhood doesn't work when you get pregnant. Like it just, no part of it actually makes sense for women. Um, Regarding the trans movement, 
I wrote an article in 2012 about gender reassignment surgery. And as I was researching that article, I interviewed a lot of trans women. And my question was, how are you defining woman? And 100% of them just got pissed, like really triggered and pissed. But it's like, if you're saying that you know you're this thing that you physically don't appear to be, then how do you know? And how are you defining this thing that you're claiming you are? Because it looks like it's being defined as push-up bras and fake eyelashes and high heels. And as a woman, I'm not really down with that. Like we worked very hard to move past that. And I haven't seen a lot of trans women wearing like jeans and flannel t-shirts and Converse. It seems to be these fetishized symbols of womanhood that don't have dick to do with being a container or being aligned with the moon cycles or all of the other pieces that I know as a woman um, are womanhood. So yeah, I think, again, it's like another war on women to shove us way back. And I see it in the yoga, you know, like I've been part of the yoga community since like the late 90s. And you have all these women like wearing really tight outfits, this performative thing. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I don't need to see your camel toe. All the time <laughs> slash like those aren't pants. Yeah. That's, that's an extra cover up. And, you know, this this performance and this um, it's just it's all very offensive to me. I, I feel like women have worked hard yeah. to get out of that objectification exactly. and, you know, sexual sexualization. And I think there's a time and place. Right. You know, so it's like, sure, like I'm wearing a low cut shirt now, but it's time and place. I'm not going to go you know, to like a party in South Central LA and walk to my car alone wearing a low cut shirt. Um, And I think when we're looking at, you know, again, when Me Too erupted and it's like, all right, if we're going to talk about some sort of imbalance happening between the masculine and feminine, and if we do have these men who are misbehaving, again, it is, you know, a, a realm of equal and opposite forces. So as a woman, I feel like it's incumbent upon me to examine well, where am I responsible and how am I participating in this? And what can I do to help even out the alchemy? And, you know, in LA, it's crazy. These young girls and beautiful women walking around with their ass cheeks hanging out and their tits hanging out. And it's like, you can do that, of course, free will rocks. But if you think that's not going to have consequences and you're not riling up everyone you're passing, then you're insane. Well, it's funny that you mentioned the the Me Too movement in that period. I was working in California for some A-list actors and, you know, off the record, we were talking and I said, you know, how is this affecting? I know Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. I worked for him for with him for several years. And I, I said, you know, how is this affecting the film industry? And this actor told me, this male actor, he said, well, now there's two lists. There's the list that gets kind of passed around among uh, publicists and among uh, agents. And then there's the list that's that's being passed around among uh, studio executives. And that's the list of problematic women who may be a problem on set. So if these 
women feel like the Me Too movement helped them in some way, it actually didn't because there's a lot of women who may not get, be offered a part or even have the opportunity to um, put themselves in, in a audition circumstance because they're seen as a potential problem. So I think that that's one of the kind of the unintended consequences that came out of the Me Too movement. Uh, again, there's the issue for me is that I think women have to, and, and this kind of circles back to what Chris was saying with Chrissy Hine, I think women have to understand the difference between rape and regret. Because I think what you're talking about when a woman goes out and dresses in a very highly sexualized manner and self-sexualizes and self-objectifies herself and goes into a club and has 16 shots of tequila and, you know, makes out with five guys in the club and then blacks out and goes home with someone and this person is absolutely taking advantage of the state that this woman is in and he thinks that she's consenting to a sexual contact because of the way she's responding to him and then the next day she wakes up and says you raped me like really well okay maybe but maybe not because you took 16 shots and you put yourself out in a situation where you were dressed very sexually. So you were giving all the signs that you wanted sexual contact. And then the second someone responded to that, you said, oh, I was raped. So where does feminism fall in that? <laughs> because... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's gross at this point, And I don't know that I ever identified as a feminist. Like I was raised by a strong woman. I'm obviously a strong woman. I'm not really a fan of movements. But yeah, I mean, this version of feminism is so infantilizing and disempowering to women. And, and again, I don't see women taking responsibility. You know, for me, it's very obvious. Growing up, if you go home with a guy, if you go into his house after a date, that is a very clear communication and signal. We're going to get it on. We're going to make out. There's going to be something physical. We all know that. If I don't want that, then I don't go to his house. You know, growing up in, in Hollywood, waiting tables, jumping in and out, you know, as a writer of Hollywood, I would never fucking take a meeting with someone in their hotel room, you know? And- and there is something to how we're presenting ourselves and have and needing to take responsibility. It's male sexual energy is strong. It's very strong. That's a lot of life force. So a guy gets aroused. It's not like you and me where we're like, oh, we'll live happily ever after and we'll vacation in St. Bart's. It's like, no, I want to fuck that. I want to penetrate that. There's a lot of blood going to my penis and I want to put it in that. And I don't know if it's that young women don't know that, haven't been taught that, um, but I see women being so cavalier with their sexuality and how they are sexualizing themselves in their presentation. And again, like it's all fair game, but I think we need to understand the effects that that's having on our brothers, our fathers, our friends, our sons, and it takes two to tango. And so, you know, if we're going to come into right relationship between the masculine and feminine, it's going to take the both of us. And, you know, I don't, I, Hollywood and Madison Avenue aren't doing us any favors by, you know, these billboards of women in their panties everywhere. 
Right. So, but like, we need to really have a different, a, a lot of changes have to be made and it's not just shaming men and telling men, you know, that they suck. That's not going to solve anything. And it's also not deciding that like, oh, if I have a penis and I just put on a glitter mini skirt and a halter top, that's what women mean. Right. I, I, a hundred percent agree with you. I think one of the problems that I see is that women have been retaught that the only value they have is sexual and their ability to, again, self-objectify, self-sexualize. And I think that's the thing that I find so curious. And it's exactly what you said about the trans movement. You don't see a woman dressing like Edith Bunker and saying that she's trans. You don't see a woman dressing like Angela Lansbury and saying she's trans. They all want to be this slutty version of what they perceive woman is. And when the, when the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing happened, I figured it out. This is my hypothesis. I think what happened is if you ever watched that show, what you saw was Kim and the other women taking all of these pains and all putting all of this energy into self-presentation, makeup, hair, just hours in that world. And in the beginning, the first season or so, you know, Bruce would kind of poke his head in like, what are you guys doing in here? And, and then they would shoo him away. And then they would go back to their girl time. Well, it took about 10 years where suddenly now Bruce wants to be in the makeup chair and Bruce wants to be putting the hair on and the whole nine yards. The, I think the moment where I was like, oh, this is, again, this is a propaganda, this is a brainwashing exercise that's happened, is when he was asked, I believe it was either by Diane Sawyer or um, uh, Barbara Walters interviewed him, like his first big interview, and, he, and she said, when was the first moment you knew you were uh, born in the wrong body, that you were transsexual? He could not come up with it. Now, I know people who uh, are transsexual that, that have gone through that procedure and that process, and they can tell you the fucking second. When I was a little boy, and I used to go into my mother's closet, and I would put on her shoes, or I would put on her makeup, or, and I just always knew that I was supposed to be a girl, that I was born in the wrong body. This seemed like some type of a a brainwashing mechanism that had been applied to him and look at all of the, the attention he got. A hundred percent. So I, I don't know anything about the Kardashians. I don't, I don't know their show. I don't know why they're, I really don't know anything about it. I don't give a shit. (laughs) But when he came out as trans, my gut thought was like, oh, the girls were getting too much attention and this was his way to get back totally. know, in the public or whatnot. That was just my sense of it, but I, I don't know anything about it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because for some reason, again, I am uh, just fascinated by culture and psyops and propaganda and how these um, machines work. And so I went back and I watched kind of the first season of that world. And I was like, oh, he was always shunned 
on this show. He wasn't embraced and loved mm-hmm. and and brought in as the daddy. It was like get the hell out of here. <laughs> you know? So it just made sense that you know all those years later, suddenly he just wakes up one day and he's like, "Yeah, I'm I'm really a woman." It's so completely nuts to me, and um and I respect because I've I have that same urge to like find the propaganda and find the source. So I get that. I mean, I saw it when I was researching my article back in 2012, it happened to synchronistically coincide with the moment when the, the trans woman from orange is the new black Mm -hmm. Lorraine Cox was going on Katie Couric. And I was like, Oh, cool. Great. And I remember the moment when Katie Couric said, you know, she asked what was going on underneath her pants and then Lorraine, or I think her name's Lorraine. She said, Laverne, I don't, Laverne. I'm probably getting it. Laverne, yeah. okay. She said, um, you know, I don't want to talk about that. What I want to talk about, and there was this pause and I thought, oh good, because what I want to hear about is why this is empowering for you. I want to know why you made this move so that I could understand. Because at that point it was so new and there were a lot of, you know, a few trans people in Santa Fe where I was living at the time, but I would see it and it kind of like, scared me, disgusted me, confused me. Like there were just all the feelings because I'm not used to seeing, you know, a tall person with an Adam's apple and huge shoulders with like tits in a pink mini dress. So I was like, good, I want you to explain it to me so that I could understand. And instead what she went into was the citing of statistics of how many trans people commit suicide and how many trans people are attacked. And I was like, this is the op. So she had this amazing opportunity to instead empower trans people and tell us why this is amazing. And she went straight to victim. And, and, and because this is like the biggest, most mainstream trans interview we've had, this is setting the groundwork for how this op is going to go. And it it really bummed me out. Yeah. Go ahead. Did you want to continue with that? Well, I just, I just wanted to to round out this first hour here. Sure. Okay. I I just wanted to say uh, back in the 80s, I want to say like 87, 88, I took a human sexuality class at a, a community college and the statistics, and this is again in 1987, 88, were that 60% of people who had the gender reassignment surgery had it reversed and they were absolutely, talk about suicide rates exploding because suddenly what they realize is that changing, you know, and then this very Frankenstein way, changing these parts doesn't change the brain. So the idea that I now have breasts and I can't ever have an orgasm, uh, I have the opportunity to have cancer or osteoporosis or, you know, all of the, just the laundry list of side effects from doing this, a lifetime of surgeries. This is something that they're not telling young people that go into this world is that you are signing on to a lifetime of plastic surgeries that you, you know, you can get so many um, infections and there's so many unintended consequences from doing that, that I think that's the thing that, again, it's attacking the feminine, but it's also attacking just um, men and the family. It's just saying that your family, if they don't support you, you know, having your penis cut off, then they don't love you. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's insane. I mean, it, it absolutely shortens the lifespan because a lot of those hormones and pharmaceuticals that people who transition take are conclusively linked to cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me as a journalist, I'm always following the money and it's like, who benefits this pharmaceuticals? Why do we continue to believe that the pharmaceutical companies are kind-hearted, compassionate, feeling beings who give a shit about us? It's And again, like, I'm all for freedom. So if someone wants gender reassignment surgery, like, I'm, I'm completely for whatever they want to do. But my perspective on it is, has always been, if this is organically appearing, if we have some sort of novelty appearing in the species that has all these people in first world nations deciding that mm-hmm. they're born into the wrong body, doesn't it make more sense for us to simply expand our definition of those genders than to marginalize them and say, well, go chop yourself up to try to look like something like you're never going to look like. That just doesn't feel very compassionate to me. Exactly. Yeah, agreed. Well, that w- let's make that the place to wrap up the first hour. Uh, if you want to uh, stay tuned for the next hour, then that will be behind a paywall. And the first question will be, do you think that Michelle Obama is a guy? Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, uh, would you tell the listeners where they can find you and your work online? Yes. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, the umbrella site for me is dannycats.com. And from there you can get to my books, um, my quantumlanguaging.com website, which tells you all about my coaching and consulting services, tells you you can get to my podcast, to my Instagram. Um, I have a really bumping group coaching community called Saturday Salon. And um, I think that's it. Well, my love, what the hell did you think about that? That Fantastic was conversation. Amazing, fun, thought provoking, interesting. I yeah. I really truly enjoyed yeah. that. And I, I was looking forward to it. You know, this is one of these interviews that I'm I humbly can say I was really, really excited for, but a little bit nervous because uh you know, I'm a perfectionist. I want to be perfect. Um, and so I want to make sure I say the right things and then I put myself in the right headspace. And I feel like I really uh, was able to express myself in the way that I uh, feel like was very honorable and uh, forthcoming. And then I got to say what I wanted to say. And I loved hearing what Danny and you both had to say. Um, yeah, you probably couldn't be talking to somebody more non-judgmental. You did not need to feel that way at all. She's good at rolling with whatever she's given and turning it into something incredible and fantastic. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, the funny thing is I kind of got turned on to Danny through Emily Mm -hmm. because they have a podcast together and I was exploring Emily's world. And of course, inevitably I came upon Danny and their podcast together. And so... You know, I was starting to go, okay, well, let's reach out to this person and see if she wants to come on the show. So I I think I friended her or followed her on Instagram, and then I went to Facebook and found out that we were already friends. Like, I guess you went on to my, or the Melts Facebook account yeah. and befriended a lot of people. So really it was, you know, you were predicting the future. How did you stumble upon her and on Facebook to, God, to even I, friend her. I don't know. I think she somehow it was 
It was something she said. I totally forgot that. You're yeah. right. I did friend her on uh-huh. Facebook. I was very surprised. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think I think it was life. something that she said that that uh tickled me that mm-hmm. I, I I read that resonated with me that I was like, Oh what's going on with this chick? What's she do? What's <laughs> what's happening in her world? Yeah. Yeah, she's great. She's got a great energy and uh very optimistic and positive, which I think is sometimes lacking in the waters that we swim in, um, where people can get sort of overwhelmed and maybe bordering on hysterical with some of the information that we, um, that we, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, that we deal with. Let's just go with that. Um, because we kind of didn't even go into those areas with Danny, but she can go she can go there with the best of them and uh, we'll do some more of that when we have her and Emily on. But we kind of got into the languaging stuff a little bit. We dipped in and out of it. I was thinking it would be more about that, but it ended up being fine and fantastic as a, as a organic conversation. But I was really impressed. Sometimes I know that you have been telling me about my language for a long time or drawing that to my attention, but sometimes it helps me to have examples. And what I liked about her audiobook is it gave a lot of examples, not only examples of, of uh, things that people say that aren't very positive things to say, but ways to substitute and to change those things into something positive. So that was very helpful for me. Yeah, I think in, in our circumstance, when I'm pointing those things out, it's easy for the the instinct to go into a defense mode. And so nobody likes to be called out on their shit. And so coming from your person, when your person is saying that, it's easy to kind of seize up. But, you know, the mindset of when you're listening to a podcast and someone is pointing something out and then giving you a tool to use. I think that's, you're not in a place of defense there. So it's maybe easier to absorb that. And I'm grateful for that because I, I am listening to my words and how I speak and I still have unconscious, I still have blind spots. I still have things that I'm working on that I'm uh, uh, becoming more aware of. And the, probably the primary one was the have to Mm -hmm. because I say that a lot when it comes to schoolwork and things that um, are in that realm. And now I understand what the difference is. And this is stuff that we talked about in the second hour. Mm -hmm. I do that with work work. And uh, I, you know, as you know, I feel like I've got a lot on my shoulders. You've got a lot on your shoulders too. They're just different things on our shoulders. And it's easy for me to take the martyr role and, think that I've got this, you know, this my own personal little heck that I'm carrying around with me and nobody can understand it. Nobody's in my position, blah, 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 blah. But that is just a cage that I'm setting up around me. And I'm, the more I talk about it or the more I describe it, the more I decorating it, the more I'm fine tuning it. Um, so it makes total sense. I mean, thought, everything starts with thought and our interface with the outside world, namely other people, um, is expressing those thoughts, what we choose to express first and foremost, and second of all, how we express them. Um, So that becomes really, really important. 
And I think a lot of people are used to just letting whatever little tiny little thing comes to their mind come out of their mouth. And sometimes that's not always positive. So the effect that that may have on somebody who maybe is not in the same mood or they feel they're in a vulnerable state of mind for whatever reason, it might affect them in a way that can kind of spread that. Um, so it's, it's, I think it's good that we're both aware of this and we can help each other out with, um, you know, helping each of us to, to be able to speak and communicate in a way that's beneficial for not only ourselves, but each other and those around us. I perceive that a lot of this has to do with frequency as well. And this is something that you and I have talked about before, about having something come into your mind where you realize that's not my thought. Mm -hmm. That's not my, I don't, I have no ownership of that. And it's almost like the dial of your brain. If you're open, the dial of your brain is picking up on some thought in the ether. And I think it's really vital to be able to identify what is yours, what is your language and what is not your language. And so all of that, what that has to do with is just awareness Mm -hmm. and our level of, um, being awake in our minds. Like, are we walking through life asleep and we're just receiving things and just assuming that those things that we're picking up on are our things or are we picking up things that are someone else's that happen to drive by or (laughs) happen Mm -hmm. to be in the same room or whatever, whatever the circumstance is. So for me, the, the have to pivot is I get to, uh, or I am dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. I am doing my homework. Yeah. Maybe I'm sorry. I didn't know you weren't done. Not, not, I have to do my homework. I am doing my homework or I get to, or I am going to. I think those are, those are great because that's where so much of my energy is focused right now. And I don't want that stuff to be a, a um, energy drain for me. For sure. And calling it that is only makes it that much more so it is an, it can be an energy drain anyway just because it takes so much time and attention but to then further attach this baggage to it can only make it more so but i like what she said about you know sometimes it's not going to sound genuine to go i get to do my homework tonight so maybe the compromise would be the more neutral i'm going to do some homework tonight i'm going to do my blah 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 work blah 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 Mm-hmm. And I'll, I need to try and do that. I'm there. That's another one. She, she, she pointed out repeatedly is try. Try is almost a way of saying, I'm not going to do that for a while, you know, or I'm not going to do it at all. But I'm going to make you think that I am by saying I'm going to try. It's channeling Yoda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so I like uh, I like word magic. I think... Um, I see uh, the kids doing that sometimes, and it, it makes me more aware of wanting to give them some alternate ways to to say things because it, yeah, it's important. It's manifestation. I think the story that I tend to tell myself is that I'm I'm not an aware person in the sense of being 
tuned to a frequency where, oh, let's say paranormal things happen to me. I don't see UFOs, whatever, however it manifests. I don't see spirits. I don't do the, I'm, I'm dull in that way. I'm, you know, and so by constantly telling myself that if something anomalous does occur, then I'm more apt to write it off as just something else, you know? So it's writing my own story. So we are all constantly writing our own stories and we're all collaborating on the big story too. So with that in mind, it's, it's, you know, it's, it seems of utmost importance to do that as, as uh, deftly, deftly, is that the word I'm looking at? Yeah, as possible. Yeah, it's talking yourself out of your own magic or talking yourself out of your own brilliance. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessary. There's no reason, as she said, to make yourself small. And I think women have been taught that throughout history to make yourself small. If you want to be attractive to a man, you have to be small. You can't take up a lot of space. So I think that goes for men and women from an energetic standpoint is that it's really important that we allow ourselves the, the uh, adaptability and the ability to tune in to gratitude, as she said, uh, to really be cognizant and aware of the constraints we put on ourselves when we talk about time you know, we've got into that discussion with the kids a few, a week or so ago about time. And I said, you know, the time is arbitrary because I do think, think these are important concepts and ideas to reinforce and to explore. And they are at the age where they are so porous and having a, a parent or two parents who look at the world from a different perspective, I think is so valuable Mm -hmm. because it gives them a spectrum to examine as opposed to all of us saying, this is what the world is and this is what your world is. I don't think we have the right to do that. I agree. And that's, I mean, we can see that, um, on a societal level, too, uh, the mantra that always comes back to me is same shit, different day. Like, how many people say that? Or or the very, usually very morosely worded, living the dream. How you doing? I'm living the dream. Like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not even dreaming. Like, and that's just so belittling to reality. Those kinds of sayings are so belittling to reality. And I think... I mean, that's a symptom of lots of things. Materialism, I was going to mention. Nihilism. Nihilism, I was going to mention that uh, pornography seems to be a tributary of materialism because it's, it's, uh, it's portraying something that has so much spiritual potential and energetic potential to something that's just like meat and friction. Um, so I think that, you know, living in a materialist reductionist society with science as the religion, um, scientism as the religion, helps us to reduce things to what we see right in front of us and that, that there's no potential past that. But there's, I mean, that's where all the potential lies and it comes from our imaginations and our minds and how our minds express themselves through our words. So all very important. 
I would say the thing that I love the most that Danny said in the second hour was when she called the predators the powers that were. Yes, exactly. I absolutely love that because it is disempowering this predatorial um, race of people. And I think it's very important that we don't continue to feed them. Uh, so, yeah, I agree about the sexual energy stuff. And that that's something that I, you know, being in the sexual field for decades of my life, I, I really took time to kind of unravel all of that and look at it and say, well, okay, what is this? What is this energy? And when I lived with someone who was completely addicted, it's when this occurred to me, I was like, oh, you're a battery, you're feeding something. There's some it's something in this morphogenic field that is feeding off of your energy. And so when you get into this looping thing and you go darker and darker and darker into what the uh, stimulus needs to be, it's because you are being drained. So I think that this is a very powerful uh, discussion that we had on so many levels and again, I'm just so grateful to Danny and I'm just so grateful to you, Chris, because I would, I would not be in this circumstance, in this environment doing this with anyone else but you. And I feel so lucky to be able to have these conversations because I think that they are raising our frequency. I think they are resonating out into the ether and out into the universe and that's really powerful stuff. So thank you. My God, I could say the exact same thing. Thank you so much for meeting me halfway. It's a dream. You could and just did. Hey, whoa. <laughs> whoa now. That's a spell I already cast. Okay. Yes. Shall we draw to a close? Let's do it. Okay. We've called this into being. We did. Um, thank you all so very much listening uh hopefully it was as pleasurable for you as it was for us danny is a a power to behold and um yeah more power to her look forward to having her back and her and emily back if you like what you've heard if you have guest suggestions casserole recipes all that stuff um you can contact us through the website or uh, at the melt podcast at protonmail.com or hunter-muse at protonmail.com. Indeed. Uh, we uh, encourage interaction, uh, connection. That's what we're all here for, is to trade recipes figuratively and literally and to help each other out, support each other, and um, give each other a place to uh, be ourselves, basically. A big place. The space is infinite. So come... Come join us. <laughs> all right. Thank you all so very much for listening. We love you, and uh, there's more coming. We do. We love Danny Cats. Meow. <laughs> Meow. <laughs> if you've liked what you've heard and would like to contribute to The Melt, there are a few ways that you can do that. The most tangible would be financially. Just click the Patreon link in the episode notes and there you will find ways that you can contribute for as little as $3 a month. 
This will give you access to bonus episodes, early access to regular episodes, and you can also participate in monthly Zoom meetups. Contributing financially will also help make the melt better, pay the bills, and help to make this podcast a full-time endeavor that I can fully devote my time to and provide you with more content. Another way of contributing would be to go to wherever it is that you subscribe to The Melt and give it a favorable review or rating, and this will help it to reach more people. You can also spread the word to friends and family via social media, email, or word of mouth. And lastly, if none of those options are readily available or appealing to you, simply send your positive thoughts and intentions. In an interconnected and quantumly entangled multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.